but we are glad you're with us at the Antioch campus today. Several years ago, the summer after my oldest graduated from college and was living at home before he got married, I broke a rib, which just to be honest with you, you couldn't have convinced me that it would have been possible for me to hurt as badly as I did than when I broke a rib. Everybody's tough in my estimation until they break a rib. It was the single most painful thing that has ever happened to me. But I broke it right around the time a, the wind from a thunderstorm came through and snapped a little tree that was in our front yard. And pre-rib break, my plan was to dig it out and fill the hole and put sod over it. But because I have enough experience with these kinds of things, uh, I, I kind of thought, you know, that's not going to work. Uh, it's been there long enough that really digging it out is not going to be possible. Um, and I may have to have an alternative plan. And I had the alternative plan, but then I broke the rib. And so I decided this was a perfect opportunity for my nearing marriage son to learn a valuable lesson. And so I said, son, I'm hurting too bad. I can't get out there and do that myself. I'm going to need you to, uh, to take that little root ball out and get everything taken care of. He said, sure thing. And he was encouraged by the fact that I brought a lawn chair out onto the driveway with a... <laughs> with a drink to watch what he was doing. I took pictures. I figured this needed to be documented. And I watched him work a good two hours knowing he probably wasn't going to be able to get it done, not sharing anything with him at all. And after he got to the point of breaking, he said to me, he said, Dad, I don't think I can uh, dig this out of here. And I said, I didn't figure you would. Let's go get a stump grinder. And he said, a what? And, and, and so we went and got it and rented it. I showed him how to use it. And he realized that he had spent his entire morning doing something that could have taken 10 minutes. He was furious. I thought it was hysterical. But, but he was furious. Now, it's one thing to face difficulty without realizing there's a resource available to you that can make the whole thing go much more easily. But it would be another thing entirely to face a difficulty face a trial, knowing that you had a resource that would help you, but in the midst of the trial, completely forgetting about that resource. That's what we're going to see happen today in the lives of the Jewish people in a series of trials they faced. So if you would please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Today, we are going to see that Forgetting God's past faithfulness to Israel caused them to be completely overwhelmed by their present circumstances. And in the process, we're going to see that, that we, at times, forget God's past faithfulness to us. And it causes us to be overwhelmed by our present circumstances. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, too much for us to cover verse by verse, but we're going to survey the land and kind of hit its high points by giving you three scenes that they describe for us. First scene. Starting verse 22, the rest of chapter 15 tells us that Israel had departed the shores of the Red Sea, having experienced the single greatest miracle in the Bible apart from the resurrection of Jesus in his deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea and his destruction of the Egyptians. And verse 22 tells us that three days, three days after they had had that experience, 
they begin to grumble against God and against Moses, his servant. But before you roll your eyes dismissively at those silly Jews, let us make sure that we understand why they were grumbling. They had journeyed three days in the desert and found no fresh water. Now, one of my favorite places to visit in the world, and I've been blessed to go a lot of places, but one of my favorite places to visit in the world is the Valley of the Sun, the Phoenix metropolitan area. For years, we enjoyed it so much that we would vacation there in July. Not the optimal time to visit uh, Arizona, but the prices are cheap, and so we would go then. I, I just loved going. My family loved going. But while we were there, I was uh, the water Nazi. I would, when we arrived, I'd go to the grocery store and I'd buy a big pack of water. And then I would make certain that everyone had a bottle of water at all times and that they were regularly drinking from it. Because in that very dry desert air, it doesn't take long without water before you can get into some real serious trouble. Now, the people of Israel were journeying, let's not forget, in the dry desert air of Sinai. And I want you to note that the text doesn't tell us they'd gone without water for three days. It just says that they hadn't been able to find fresh water for three days. But that's a scary proposition when you were wandering the desert. Whatever ration they may have had had at the very least started to run very low, critically low, if not having been depleted entirely. And then I want you to picture yourself as a parent. Remember, these are families that are traveling with Israel. And I want you to imagine how you would feel if your child looked up at you and said, Mommy, Daddy, I'm thirsty. All I'm saying is that before we get so dismissive of the concerns of the Jewish people here, a mere three days after the greatest miracle in the Bible apart from the resurrection of Jesus, let me just drop you and your family in the Sonoran Desert with a jug of water, and three days later, if you've not been able to get that fill, you tell me if you're super happy about it. I mean, obviously, they were facing a critical issue. Now, they did find water, but verse 23 tells us that it was bitter. And what we're most likely being told is that it just had a really high mineral content, uh, almost caustic in its effect on the palate. It probably, probably wouldn't kill a person, but it would have tasted so horrible that nothing short of thirst deliver delirium would have caused you to want to choke it down. So they were in a tight spot. And we are told that the Lord hears their cry and through Moses miraculously makes the bitter water sweet, makes it pleasant to drink. That's the first scene. Second scene, Exodus 16, tells us just a few weeks later, make sure you heard that, just a few weeks later, they begin to grumble for lack of food. We're actually told the whole lot of them was were grumbling. That's kind of a new wrinkle. Probably means that the problem had been building for a while, which probably means that this was more than simply complaining because they had missed a meal. They were facing, in all likelihood, very real scarcity. And once again, before you get judgy, let me just empty your refrigerator out, have you miss a few meals, and see if you're happy with me. But there's a bit more bite to their complaints in Exodus 16 that wasn't there when they were complaining about water. Our English translations don't do a super job of, of 
kind of helping us get the, the real gist of what is being said in verse 3, and it makes it feel like, as we read it, that they're just blaming Moses for this. But the gist of it is, if God was going to kill us, why didn't he just kill us in Egypt when our bellies were full? It's okay to grimace at that. I mean, it's a little blasphemous. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Sure, they were hungry, but think of all of the amazing things that they had seen God be able to do on their behalf. And so once again, God miraculously provides for them, this time with quail that supernaturally descend upon them. Probably not anything that you would call a quail here in North America, something more like probably, if you know what a chucker is, a, a larger bird, something like that. But we're also told, more importantly, that God began to provide for them bread on the morning dew, which they called manna. Now, Bible scholars have tried for centuries to try to identify what this miracle bread really was to no avail, to which I say, duh, it was a miracle. A miracle bread that started with their complaints and ended when they arrived in the promised land. I don't believe there is a natural explanation for it. I believe, uh, taking the text at face value, it was sent from God. And with it came very specific instructions. You were to collect no more than what you needed for the day, and you were to collect it for six days. On the sixth day, you could collect for two days because no one was to collect it on the seventh day as a way of preparing the people for the observance of the Sabbath, which will be given in greater detail in the Ten Commandments. So the Lord provides for their food needs. So we've seen uh, thirst dealt with by God. We've seen a lack of food dealt with by God. Here's the final scene. Thirst becomes a problem again. We aren't told how long it has been since the Lord provided them food, but we are told in Exodus 19 that they arrive at the foot of the mountain where Moses and the people were received the Ten Commandments exactly three months after having left Egypt. So at most, at most, the grumbling of Exodus 17 is no more than a handful of weeks since the Lord started giving them manna, listen, every morning but one during the week. And they're complaining again. And in this final scene, Moses says something different to God than what we have seen before. Moses says to God, um, I think if you don't do something about this, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. So this time, it's not just the people who have forgotten God's faithfulness, is it? Moses had forgotten God's faithfulness to him. And I want you to think what that would have meant to him. I mean, think of the preservation that Moses had experienced as a baby as he was delivered and from the Nile River. I want you to think about how he was abundantly provided for in Pharaoh's house. I want you to think about how he was protected by a desert priest when he was on the run for his life and given one of his daughters to marry and start a family. And, and he has been made to be like God himself in the eyes of Pharaoh. And he has, through God's using of him, uh, caused incredible miracles to take place in the land of Egypt. And yet here is Moses out over his skis with worry about what the people are going to do to him. He's worried. He's forgotten. And once again, God miraculously provides water, but in a unique way that helps Moses. We'll see that in a minute. So those are the three scenes. And if we were sitting in Sunday school class, we would have a Sunday school point. 
we would be saying that God provided for his people in the desert despite their grumblings. And that is true. We've seen that in all three scenes. But God here has provided them with more than food and water. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. I want to give you a countercultural thought. God provided for them by giving them a trial. As, as Americans, we are addicted to our own comfort and our own ease. And we believe that everything ought to be perfect all of the time. And so for us, when we experience difficulty, when we experience trial, we think that something is wrong. But what we are shown abundantly in this passage, and we're getting ready to see how, what we're shown abundantly in this passage is that God did more than just give them food and water. He gave them the trial in the first place to accomplish some really radical things. I want you to think about how you process times of trial in your life. I want you to, if you could please, just think through something that has been overwhelming that has happened to you. Maybe something that you're going through right now. Probably for some of you it is. But for me, when I think of a time of trial, I think of the, the most difficult time I've experienced as a pastor. It was in the previous church that I served. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. 95% of the people in that church were a dream to pastor. But man, that 5%, they wore me a smooth spot. I mean, it was rough. And, and, and they, would, they would make a lot of racket and, and, and a lot of upheaval. And so for the first time in my vocational ministry life at that point, attendance started going down under my leadership and not up. The rowdy folks would gather at the local coffee shop every single morning, and they would just rip me stem to stern every single morning, roasting me so that everybody heard it. The local leader of our denomination used those disgruntled people to pull off and start a new church to put a feather in his little denominational cap. He was a great guy. I mean, I was just out there all by myself. It was terrible. I hated every second of it. But there was provision in that trial for me. I look back on that now and I know that God had me go through it to get me ready for here. Because up until that point in time, my, my ministry life had been uh, an unbroken string of successes as churches tend to view such a thing. And had I come here and experienced that same kind of success, I wouldn't have been able to keep my head on its shoulders. And uh, what's worse, it would have been detrimental for you. It would have been detrimental for me. Had I not gone through the trial, the experience that the blessing of Blue Valley would have ruined me spiritually. And it may have ruined the church. I hated that season of trial in my life. But that trial was absolutely God's provision for me. Think about your trial. Is it possible that you could look at that as being God's provision for you? I promise you, I promise you he's in it. He's in it. But how do you start to think about it as being his provision for you? Well, let's learn three lessons that I think the Jewish people were meant to learn that we ourselves can learn about our trial. First, we need to see along with them that God uses our circumstances to refine us. He uses 
our circumstances to refine us. And we see this clearly in God's response to their thirsty grumbling in their first waterless trial. I want you to look at Exodus 15, verses 25 and 26. Moses cries out to God, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water. The water became sweet. They were able to drink it. And then note this, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases or the plagues on you that I put on the Egyptian, for I am the Lord your healer. In Moses' language, that word tested communicates the idea of something being proven. So what God is up to in this waterless trial is to teach the people what it means to be obedient to him in the worst of circumstances. I want you to imagine what you would think of me if I told you we're in this spot where we can't have water, all of us have run out of water, we're going to die in just a few days if we don't get this fixed. But here's the plan. See this log? I'm going to throw it in the pond, and then everybody drink up. Okay, all right, sure, sure I'll do that. Now, you would obviously blow me off if I said this, but this is the Lord saying it to them. Now, that doesn't make any sense, does it? I don't know if you've had chemistry, but I know of no way to make water pleasant to eat by throwing wood in it. I know of no way to make that happen. But this is what God says to do. And this was the test. Will you obey me even if you can't see the purpose in it? Will you do that? Will you obey me even if you can't see the purpose in it? Why was God giving that test? Because this was going to be critical to their survival. It was going to be critical to their ability to remain faithfully God's people to where they got to a point where they could completely and absolutely trust the Lord with their lives, doing that which might not even make sense to them in that moment because the Lord had said to them to do it. This is one of the things that can happen for us in a trial. The Lord uses it to refine us, to make us more like Him and to be more usable in His hands. So when God is providing a trial to you in that way, it is meant to accomplish a good and wonderful purpose for you. That's the first thing to see. The next thing to see is this. God uses our circumstances to teach us. To teach us. We see this in the provision of the manna. After instructing them on how to collect and use the manna, God instructs Moses in an unusual way in verse 32 and 33. Look at Exodus 16, 32 and 33. Moses said, and he's communicating what God has said to him, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded, let an omer, which is about two quarts, let an omer of it, the manna, be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread of which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer, again about two quarts of manna in it, and place it before the Lord and to be kept throughout generations. Now this is looking a little bit ahead, 
But what they were to do is to preserve this manna, which they are told otherwise rots after a day. That's the reason you can't collect it more than what you need in that day. And God is going to miraculously preserve it, and they are to put it, this is coming, into the Ark of the Covenant. And apparently, periodically, to pull it out and let the people behold it. Why? Why would they do that? To remind them, in the difficult times that would be coming, that the Lord has been faithful to them. It was an object lesson. They were being taught through the trial by the Lord. Now, let me ask, do you have anything in your life that you hang on to as a reminder of God's provision for you during a difficult time? Or maybe an artifact spiritually for you? I have a few artifacts uh, spiritually, personally, some Bibles that uh, I was using during a difficult time. But we have as a church an artifact, a spiritual artifact that's designed to teach us, to help us, to help us understand how the Lord uses trial. And you walk by it at the Antioch campus every Sunday morning when you come in. In fact, you walk by it so much you may have not paid any attention to it. But one of the most common questions that we get from new people is what's up with the rock out there? I mean, what is all of that about? And to make a very long story a shorter story, hopefully, so that you can get to lunch. That rock was uh, a rock that we brought out on this stage uh, in October of 2007 when we were experiencing kind of a celebration time as a church that showed that God had seen us safely through a very, very difficult time as a church. We leaned into what we saw uh, the people of Israel do at God's command in the book of Joshua when after crossing into the promised land through the Jordan River before the Jordan River closed back God had done that same kind of miracle again they were to take rocks from the middle of the river and they were to build an altar and the purpose of that altar is so that future generations could say you know those rocks used to be at the bottom of that river and the reason we've got them is because God made a way for us as a way of teaching them for generations that God is faithful. And so we have that rock out there to teach us as a church that God has been faithful to us in the past and will continue to be faithful to us in the future. God gives us ongoing lessons through looking back on trials. And then finally, God uses our circumstances to remind us. God uses our circumstances to remind us. And let me just encourage you to tag on the end of that the words remind us of his presence. God uses our circumstances to remind us of his presence. And we see this in how God uses the last trial, the last we don't have any water trial in Moses' life. In chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, as Moses has said, they're going to kill me if you don't do something. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff, the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now remember how the water was solved the last times. God had Moses take a piece of wood and throw it in. 
So he did that. But here, here, he's to use his staff. Do you remember, if you've been here with us since we started this message series back in January, do you remember the significance of the staff for Moses? It wasn't a lucky rabbit's foot. It was a tangible reminder of God's presence in his life. And so we see, worded very precisely, multiple times, Moses left or went somewhere, and he took his staff. And I want you to think about God, how, how God used that staff in his life. He used it to perform signs in front of the Egyptians, and the staff became a snake and then went back to being a staff again. He used that staff to begin to launch the plagues of Israel as he touched the Nile with it, and the rivers in all of the land were, were turned to blood. It was with the staff, with the staff, that God said, stand before the people and they'll see my mighty hand. And he put the staff in front of the Red Sea and parted it. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot for Moses. The staff represents God's presence in his life. And so by having that staff and going to the rock, God is saying to Moses, don't forget, I am with you. That's one of the easiest things to forget in the midst of a trial, isn't it? It is easy for us to forget that we have the Lord, that the Lord has not abandoned us, that he has not forsaken us. It's the easiest thing in the world to forget. And when we do that, when that happens in our lives, when we forget the presence of the Lord, then the circumstances that we are facing are overwhelming and can lock us down. I mean, I've continued to have difficult times since that previous vocational experience at my previous church. I've had difficult times as as just a a pastor. I've had difficult times as as a father as we watched our oldest and his wife go through a significant period of infertility and loss. I mean, I've had those trials, continue to have those trials. There's trials in my future that I couldn't even imagine right now. And I can tell you that the times... When I have understood the Lord's presence in the middle of it, like in the midst of our oldest and his wife's infertility and loss, that God comforted me in the midst of it and I was able to provide comfort. But I can tell you, for instance, during the very difficult times that every church and every pastor had in 2020 and 21, that I forgot some of that. And I I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed. I don't know if you know this. You don't have a class in seminary what to do in a pandemic. You don't have a class in seminary what to do when we're coming apart at our racial seams. You you don't have a class in seminary that says, here's how you navigate the most divisive election in the history of mankind. None of that happens. But you know what we do have? We have the Lord. And when I have the Lord, and when I remember the Lord, and part of what I did on sabbatical is to say, hey, I'm not by myself, am I? The Lord is here with me. If I'd remembered that earlier, that wouldn't have been as trying a time as it was. So what can we do? What can we do to actually actually kind of stabilize ourselves in the midst of trials when it threatens to overwhelm us? Well, we sang about it before I preached. We sang about about the truth that all our hope is in Jesus. 
And so we have to remember that in the midst of our trials. All of our hope is in Jesus. And you know the best way to remember all our hope is in Jesus? Is to remember he saved you. I mean, the most true thing about my life is March of 26, 1978, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the most true thing about my life, now and forever. It's the most true thing about my life. And when I go into a trial, and I, I, I'm in, you know, let's use nautical language. If, if I'm in a little rowboat and I'm in a category five hurricane, one of the things that can stabilize the ship for me is to remember that Jesus saved me from all my sin, moved me from death to life, according to the Word of God. Death to life. And if God can do that, if He can take me from being spiritually dead and lost in my sins to making me not only alive in Christ, but, but a, a child of God, a younger sibling to my elder brother Jesus, if He can do that, he can see me through here. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I don't want you to think that you give your life to Jesus and you just remember, hey, I'm saved, and all of a sudden everything's great. All of a sudden all the little connections are made, and you say, I know why I'm here. I don't know why some of the worst things in my life have happened to me. I mean, I look back on the loss of my father-in-law out of the blue, at 52 years old. And I look back on that and, and understand the, that, you know, my, my kids were, were nine and six and just processing through. Are they even going to remember him? Are they going to know what he sounded like? Are they going to know what he's like? And you say, well, so do you get why you went through that? No, I don't have any idea. No idea why that season of trial was brought into my family's life got no idea. And I think about it all the time when I look at my grandchildren that he never got to meet. I think about it all the time. No idea why it happened. But even in the midst of that, perhaps more important in the midst of that than any other time in my life, I remembered I had Jesus. And though that shook me to my core, it never rocked my faith. Jesus was with me. And with my family. And if there's anything to learn out of it, I learned I could trust Jesus with anything when that trial hit our family. And you can too. Jesus is not out of control with the circumstances that are coming to your life. He's Lord of all of it. And he has a purpose for it in the midst of it that is for his glory and your good and sometimes all you can do is just trust that's true and how you trust it is you look back on your salvation and understand he saved me he's got this let's go to the Lord in prayer